This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. But on today's show, author Nathaniel Philbrick talks about his new book, Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the fate of the American Revolution. Then PW correspondent Shannon Mon talks about the growing market for digital audio. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And uh, on the fiction list, we have our highest debut is at number three. This is The Fireman by Joe Hill. And as uh, many of his readers know, this is the uh, son of Stephen King. And, and here, uh, reading from the review, we say in Hill's superb supernatural thriller, the world is falling apart in a maelstrom of flame and fury. We say that Hill has a tremendous heart-rending epic of bravery and love set in a fully realized and terrifying apocalyptic world where hope lies in the simplest of gestures and the fullest of hearts. Uh, so that's at number three. At number five, we have what looks to be a uh, very nice uh, vacation book is The Weekends by Mary Kay Andrews. It's got a uh, nice cover with uh, on a beach with uh, uh, multicolored bags, bright colored bags, ready for vacation. So it looks uh, looks like a pretty good uh, escape. And speaking of escapes, we have at number eight, Beyond the Ice Limit, a Gideon Crew novel by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. And in our review, we say Preston and Child's exciting fourth Gideon Crew novel satisfactorily resolves the cliffhanger with which they ended their 2000 thriller. We say the best-selling authors maintain suspense throughout and they throw in some original ideas that all set some familiar action tropes. So uh, that's at number eight. And for another kind of uh, getaway uh, is the highwayman, Craig Johnson. We say Wyoming's scenic Wind River Canyon provides the setting for this atmospheric Walt Longmere novella, an update, according to Johnson, of a Charles Dickens ghost story, The Signal Man. We say later on, you don't have to be a fan of Longmere, but the hit Netflix series uh, to appreciate this uh, clever tale, Longmere's uh, Netflix series. So that's at number 12. And uh, kind of light on the uh, on the fiction, but on the nonfiction, we have uh, Bare Bones, which is by Bobby Jones. Who is uh, who hosts the uh, nationally syndicated country music morning show? What's kind of interesting is at number nine we have another DJ, uh, which is my voice, who is Angie Martinez. She's the uh, voice, uh, the so-called voice of New York uh, from uh, I guess two decades ago. It's from uh, Hot ninety seven, uh, which is now Power one hundred five point one, but. Uh, 
20 years ago. Uh, listeners will certainly remember her voice, and that's at number nine. And uh, going down the list a little bit here. By the way, Bare Bones, uh, the subtitle, which I really like, is I'm Not Lonely If You're Reading This Book, which uh, really does sound like a country music uh, song in itself. At number two, we have The Gene, An Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee and Skillful Bros Mukherjee, an oncologist and the Pulitzer Prize winning author of The Emperor of All Maladies, relates the grand tale of how scientists have come to understand the role genes play in human development, behavior, and physiology. We say by relating familiar information, uh, the oncologist grounds the abstract and the personal to add power and poignancy to his excellent narrative. So that's at number two, uh, selling pretty nicely, made a um, pretty decent debut there. Uh, at number 11, we have, it's kind of a, um, uh, not really a cookbook, but a meal delivery book. It's called Plated, Weeknight Dinners, Weekend Feasts, and Everything in Between. Uh, Rachel Deal, uh, last week, uh, had a feature called Clarkson Potter Courts the Meal Kit Market. And uh, here, uh, according, we don't have a review of this because it's mostly a meal kit, but the more than 125 repertoire uh, building recipes and plated will help you cook and eat food you love without having to think so hard about it. That's according to the publicity. So uh, that's at number 11. And uh, just mentioning uh, something on the trade uh, paper list is Dazzling Dogs Coloring Book. Uh, Marjorie Sarnett uh, had a big success with a couple of coloring books uh, for Dover, uh, which were Creative Cats Coloring Books. And um, this one is all about dogs. And um, that's what we have on trade paper. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Nathaniel Philbrick talks about George Washington and Benedict Arnold and their roles in the American Revolution. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ron Miscavige, and I'm the author of Rootless, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Nathaniel Philbrick on the line. His new book is Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Hello, Nathaniel. So glad you could join us. It's great to be here. Well, first of all, I want to say, who was valiantly ambitious here? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an ambiguous title in a way. It comes from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, in which Brutus says of, of, of Caesar, As he was valiant, I honor him. As he was ambitious, I slew him. And uh, and so I, I think it's a good pl- place from which to examine the intertwined lives of of Washington and Arnold, uh, you know, at a very uh, difficult time uh, in the Revolution. In your books, you often turn an accepted historical na- notion on its head. What what is the theme here? Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. Well, you know, the, Washington is revered as the, the the father of our country, quite rightly, uh, and and uh, and Arnold is is viewed as evil incarnate, as the ultimate traitor. And uh, what I wanted to show uh, was that in the early years of the war, uh, the book begins in 1776, just as the British are about to invade New York. In those early years, Arnold was actually one of, one of, if not our best battlefield general, and uh, he was racking up victories all throughout the North, uh, journeying through the wilderness to Quebec, taking Fort Ticonderoga, all these kinds of things. While Washington uh, at at New York uh, was not, that was not his finest hour. Uh, he he, uh, he lost 
terribly at the Battle of Long Island, would be forced to evacuate from New York, and then a humiliating retreat across New Jersey. And, and so this book begins with Washington, the man destined to be the one person who can hold this country together at his absolute lowest, and Arnold uh, uh, in the second chapter winning the Battle of Valcour Island, the battle that you could argue saved America in, in the year of 1776 by preventing the British from coming down from Canada uh, through Lake Champlain. And, and it begins with Arnold, the man destined to be the one to, to try to tear this country apart at his highest. And um, and I think it's you know an unusual perspective uh, for a lot of people, and it traces what happens to them over the next four years, and ends with uh, Arnold's ultimate uh, deci- decision to turn traitor uh, in in the September of 1780. Wow. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about Benedict Arnold and and maybe the relationship that he and George Washington had. How well they knew each other. Yeah. Well, Arnold was uh, grew up. In in Connecticut, uh, he he was a New Haven apothecary and seagoing merchant. And had a small fleet of, of trading vessels, and he was a very passionate person. And uh, he he uh, was an inspiring leader on the battlefield, but his passions uh, he didn't have a lot of tact. Uh, inevitably led to controversy off the battlefield. Uh, he was always getting into trouble with his fellow officers and the politicians. But he was ju- he was bar none our best battlefield general. And I think Washington uh, really respected that. It's evidenced in the letters he, he writes to him. And I think there's a part of Washington that, that was almost envious of Arnold. Uh, if he had been 10 years younger, not saddled with the crushing responsibility of command, he could have been out there on the battlefield uh, racking up the victories. Instead, you know, he was for, he was the one uh, who, who was forced to try to Keep this this country going uh, with a dysfunctional uh, Continental Congress, with uh, American people who are getting increasingly disaffected with the war, uh, and and you know and so he he was you know it, it was a difficult time for Washington, but Arnold in the beginning was the one officer he could trust. And uh, you had mentioned that if Washington were uh, a, a decade younger, he too would be out there. What what ages are we talking about? I mean, uh, at this time, you know, when you see photos or, or images, I'm sorry, of, of Washington and 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 Arnold, they're they're in their wigs and they maybe look much older than they are. Yeah, well, yeah, we all grew up with uh, Washington on the one dollar bill, you know, where right, he right. he's got his dentures and he looks like a, the you know the rock upon which this country was built, you know, the staid pragmatist. Right. But the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, at the beginning of the revolution, he was in his early forty in his forties. He was fiery, red hair, um, and he was not the staid pragmatist yet. He he had a real aggressive temperament. Uh, he wanted to fight the British. Uh, eventually, he would learn that um, it, it was too risky, that uh, rather than risk destroying his army, what he needed to do was fight a defensive war, a war of attrition, and, and hope to outlast the British. It was not what he wanted to do. But Washington had that extraordinary ability to to um, uh, get outside his personality and realize sometimes I have to change my behavior uh, for the good of the country. And, uh, you know, and that not a lot of people can do that. Benedict Arnold, for example, he was who he was. And, uh, and you know, he was, uh, interestingly, about 5'8", to Washington 6'2". Mm. 
Um, but you know, a, a, a true athlete, uh, uh, and and someone with an incredible reserves of endurance, and and he did have that charismatic presence on the battlefield that really made him a magnetic figure uh, when when the going got tough in the midst of a of a battle. So tell us a little bit about uh, the 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 background to to 1776, uh, which we as we who've read uh, maybe maybe histories on it or maybe even know just what we learned in high school and college. Just give us a little uh, background as to what was happening right then. Yeah, well, it, it, uh, Washington had just uh, been through the, what was known as the Siege of Boston. Uh, where uh, he had arrived in Boston soon after the Battle of Bunker Hill, which uh, was a, a technically a British victory, but uh, inflicted heavy casualties upon them. And uh, they were soon mired in this siege. The British had occupied Boston, and Washington's army really didn't have the gunpowder to, to effectively dislodge them. That And uh, eventually, however, Cannons were brought down from Fort Ticonderoga, which had been taken, by the way, by Benedict Arnold. And with those cannons perched on Dorchester Heights, they were able to force the British out. So this was a, a, a very good outcome for Washington. And so, uh, but he, they knew that uh, General William Howe, who was the commander of the British Army, was going to come back. Uh, what they didn't know was that in the summer of 1776, uh, with his sights set on New York, he would arrive with the lar- largest British invasionary force anyone had ever seen, 400 vessels, 40,000 men, you know, more mm-hmm. people than in all of Philadelphia, the largest urban center in, in, in North America. And you know, this was just a whole different order. And so uh, at, by this time, on, on the other side with Arnold, he had uh, taken Fort Ticonderoga, he had marched through the wilderness to Quebec, and uh, and that that fall in 1776 would fight this incredible naval battle, the Battle of Valcour Island on Lake Champlain, that would prevent the British uh, from coming down Lake Champlain, taking Fort Ticonderoga, and potentially linking up with Howe in New York. And so um, Arnold, at this early pivotal stage, uh, 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 really was the one who saved America at, at this very critical juncture. In, in our review of your book, we quote you. We say that uh, what happened was uh, so troubling and strange that once the struggle was over, a generation did its best to remove all traces of the truth. What do you mean by that? Well, what happened uh, after the, the revolution went on for eight years, uh, I grew up with a sense of it as being this sort of inevitable God-ordained march to victory at Yorktown, you know, with each battle as a stepping stone. Uh, in that direction. But it wasn't anything like that. It, it went on for eight years. Uh, people became disaffected with the, the, the conflict. Americans showed much more interest in battling themselves than the British. And the great fear became, if, if Washington should somehow win this war, would there be a country left to claim victory? And, you know, this was not a legacy anybody w- could be very proud of. But what happened is in, in the, the, the years after the revolution, uh, the myth-making uh, began. And, uh, and, and the myth of, of, the, of a ragtag band of militiamen mm-hmm. banding together and improbably defeating 
the mightiest army on earth and thereby throwing off the shackles of British tyranny. And so it, it, be, it, it, it was a much and led by Washington and with all his officers in, in complete agreement as they battle the forces of darkness. And, you know, it, it makes for a great story, but it wasn't the way it really happened. And, and, um, and, and one of the things I quote in the preface is uh, there was a, a, a Charles Thompson. He was the secretary to the Continental Congress. He was there throughout the entire uh, War of Independence. And early in the 19th century, he wanted to publish his own account of what really happened in the Congression. In, in those congressional meetings, and he soon realized he wrote out this huge manuscript, but realized that the the myths that had already been promulgated uh, uh, were completely contrary to what his version of events would be, and he decided that it would be better to destroy his manuscript rather than uh, try to, as he said, remove the veil of what really had happened. Oh wow. <laughs> So you, I want to talk a little bit about Benedict Arnold now, and he seems to have been slighted in his throughout during his life, but but also in history, um, in, in much the same way that you you you've described our our perceived notion of it. What what who in fact was he, and how was he slighted, and yeah. how has how has but history it, changed him around? <laughs> right. Well, you know, he he enjoyed these great victories, mm-hmm. and uh, in the the winter of 1777, he quite rightly expected a promotion to brig- to major general. Uh, but the Continental Congress had instituted um, a new policy, and they were the ones to select the major generals, that each state should have only two major generals. And since Connecticut already had two, they would overlook Benedict Arnold and promote five uh, brigadier generals who ranked below him, past him. The major general, and uh, this was a devastate. You know, he couldn't believe it. Nor could Washington, who uh, pleaded with Arnold not to get too excited, to hold in there, and he would try to do everything to make it right. Um, but you know, this was the the first instance, and where he began to wonder, hey, you know, <laughs> why am why am I not getting the support of my own government? He had also spent a considerable portion of his of his own money uh, during the first years of the war when he was in Canada. And he expected that the Continental Congress would would compensate him for it. And um, that was not forthcoming at all. And so he grew increasingly bitter. And then ultimately at the Battle of Saratoga, uh, which would be the great victory that ultimately would bring in France uh, on the side of America uh, in, in the War of Independence, he was terribly injured. Uh, his left leg fractured by a musket ball, and uh, he would... Uh, it would be more than a year before he could walk again. His 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 injured leg two inches shorter than the other one, and he had been terribly treated by the his commander Horatio Gates, who feared that Arnold would get the the uh, get the glory that sh- that uh, that Gates wanted for himself. And so it was just a combination of events, and he began to wonder, you know, this he was increasingly bitter about this. And then he would ultimately end up uh, the military governor of, of Philadelphia after the evacuation of the British and get embroiled in politics and uh, uh, and and become even more disaffected. And then meet a, a 18-year-old Peggy Shippen, a beautiful a woman uh, from a family with loyalist leanings who would begin to whisper in his ear that uh, if the Americans didn't appreciate him, perhaps the British would. And 
the the moment of you know, we, we we have in our minds the moment of that when the uh, uh, the, the 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 traitor happened. Uh, we we think of his clandestine meeting somewhere. Is this in fact what happened? Yeah, it's really you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, he was in correspondence with the uh, Major John Andre, who had met Peggy, his wife, uh, when they had uh, occupied uh, Philadelphia, and they carried on this this secret correspondence. And the the plan was Arnold was able to secure command at West Point, which was our now our preeminent fortress on the Hudson River, and if that should fall, it could be the end of of the war of independence since the the country was in such a terrible state and so the plan was for arnold to surrender it to the british when they came up the river uh uh with an invasionary force and but they needed to have a face-to-face meeting beforehand and so on the west bank of the hudson at haverstraw bay uh they would meet at midnight uh and and discuss these plans with arnold giving andre a uh all sorts of documents related uh, to West Point, and um, you know, and this this is what happened. It, unfortunately, Andre's escape vessel, uh, the appropriately named Vulture, uh, was fired upon by an American officer unknown to Arnold, and his escape route was was eliminated. And so he had to um, make his way along the east shore of the Hudson back towards British-occupied New York uh, through this what was known as the neutral ground, where neither army held sway. And uh, and ultimately, he would be stopped by three American militiamen who would find the documents on his person and begin to realize that perhaps this guy was a spy and Arnold's plot would be revealed. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Nathaniel Philbrick, author of Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. And we're learning a a, a telling of the years, uh, basically 1776 to 1780. Um, And in the book, you talk about minors, minor characters as well. For instance, the British general John Burgoyne and his use of Native American warriors. Yes, uh, Burgoyne, uh, while he was coming down from Canada uh, on his way to what would become the Battle of Saratoga, he enlisted uh, hundreds of native warriors uh, to as, as and and basically unleashed them on the local populace, and this brought up um, terrifying memories of the French and Indian Wars uh, that the New Englanders had fought for more than a hundred years, and and. Uh, and ironically, it actually awakened uh, the New Englanders to okay, you know, he's 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 done this. They were outraged, and uh, thousands of New England militiamen would would enlist and make their way uh, to what would become the Battle of Saratoga. So you could argue that by doing this, Burgoyne really uh, worked against his his own best interests by by. Awakening these this multi generational fear of 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 uh, native warfare. 
So I want to ask, what, what drew you to this, this time period and, and to this event specifically with, with Washington and Arnold? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it goes back to my mom, to tell you mm. the truth. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my mother, uh, who was kind of a, a renegade, she, she really enjoyed uh, telling someone exactly what she thought, especially if she did, thought the person wasn't going to agree with her. And she loved Benedict Arnold. And, you know, I would, as a kid, I'd say, what are you talking about, mom? You know, he's, he's, he's the ultimate traitor, but she, she insisted he, he didn't get a fair shake and that, you know, his, he had reasons for what he did. And I think something about the audacity of the man attracted him. And, and when I, I had written Bunker Hill and I knew I wanted to follow Washington into the middle years of the revolution, but I also wanted another perspective to bring to it. And I knew that things got bad in those middle years. And then I remembered what mom's um, uh, uh, love of Benedict Arnold came to mind. And I realized that's the person to focus on, uh, to get at sort of the dark side Mm. of the revolution. Sure. And by focusing on someone, again, who's kind of the anti-hero, you're you're able to tell a, 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 a different story through a different lens, perhaps. Yeah, and you know, all my books end up with kind of mayhem and darkness at the end. It's it's kind of the <laughs> the way I go. Whether right. it's you know a whale ship voyage or or the the pilgrims on their way to the new world, and and for me it was it was great fun uh, uh, as this book uh, uh, towards the end we're we're beginning to focus on Arnold's treason and uh, the the negotiations along the Hudson River, and and it was. And at, just as Washington is arriving at the same time, it was just really fun to to get those the, those narrative strands um, meeting uh, at the at the most climactic moment. So so bodies of water figure big into your books. We've got the Hudson yes. River, uh, your first book in the heart of the sea, which received the National Book Award. Uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you were living in Nantucket when you wrote that. You're also a sailor. Um, mm. How much of that story was uh, was inspired by just your 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 love of the sea and uh, just the area you grew up in, if at all? Yeah, well, for one, I grew up in that nautical capital of the universe, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> but uh, but um, I, I uh, did learn to sail when I was a kid. Summers, right. my parents would uh, take us to my grandparents on Cape Cod, where I, I developed a love of sailing, and and they all, we we also had a place near Lake Champlain in Vermont, uh, where uh-huh. I also did some sailing. And so that was, even though I grew up uh, inland, um, sailing was something that I really enjoyed as a kid. And I ended up uh, racing competitively, something mm-hmm. I did throughout college. And I worked at a sailing magazine. And uh, But it was when we moved to Nantucket that um, I began to realize I was an English major in college and Moby Dick was my personal Bible and, and it was moving to Nantucket, kind of the holy ground of, of that novel that uh, awakened my interest in history. And so uh, I researched the history of Nantucket, wrote a history of the island away offshore that led to In the Heart of the Sea. And um, all my books have sort of organically come from that. And, and in each one, I'm very, I'm always looking at the, the, the sort of the water route in it. It's um I, I think that's an underappreciated part of our American history. The importance of not only the sea but the rivers. I, I wrote a book about uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, uh with Custer mm-hmm. and, and that book begins tellingly, I think, with a, a riverboat on the uh, on the Missouri River. And uh, so for me, um the history of this country is 
inextricably tied up uh, with, with uh, the water. Well, of course, Pittsburgh, while landlocked, does have three rivers going through and around it. So, <laughs> so you know, you're, you mentioned Mayflower, which which seemed to be a natural progression to Bunker Hill and this current book. So we're also working in that that kind of uh, early colonial to revolutionary time period. Yeah, and you know, all my I'm I'm really I, I I'm working my way through American history. Right. Um, you know, I write these books not because I know everything about the topic. Quite the opposite. I write these books because I'm curious about what happened, and and I've got a sense of a book I would like to read, and uh, and therefore I, I research it and I ultimately write it. And and I'm uh, my my sort of big project is learning about America, and so I'm I'm not doing it uh, chronologically. I'm, uh, but um, for me, it's 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 just a process. I really enjoy learning. And um, and the excitement of discovery is is one that I try to apply uh, to my research process and to the writing process, and hopefully that's uh, something the readers can share as they're um, reading along. And in your book, The Last Stand, Custer, Sitting Bull, and the Battle of Little Bighorn, you've got another uh, duo, Custer and Sitting Bull, much like, well, maybe not much like, but but you've got your Washington and mm-hmm. Arnold before, right? Uh, and and that was just. Uh, Territorially, a lot different from uh, your your previous or your other books. Um, what drew you to that? Well, it, I had just finished Mayflower, and uh, and my take on that, I you know what, what many regard as the iconic beginning of America, uh, didn't end with the first Thanksgiving, but took it to the next generation. Uh, the the terrible Native English War called King Philip's War uh, that that almost destroyed New England. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking, well, you know, if this is sort of how it begins. Where does it lead? And, well, it leads to, to the Battle of Little Bighorn. And, and one of the themes I, I've been working w- with my books up until then was that, uh, you know, a sense of a wilderness is what defines America. It makes us different from a European country, this, this sense of potentiality and vastness. And we think of the American West as the archetypal American wilderness, but initially it was the sea. And with The Last Stand, what I wanted to do was, was okay, I've, I've written a lot about the sea. I wanted to go west and, and see how different, similar it all was. And so and, and I, the four years I spent writing and researching that were, were just I, some of the best years of my life. I, I so enjoyed my time out there. And ultimately, for me, the book was more a culmination than it was a departure. You talked about uh, you, how you research before you write. Can you tell us a little bit about your your writing process and and maybe your your research process as well? Yeah, well, uh, typically a book of mine will take about three years, and the first year is is uh, research. It's developing a bibliography, uh, collecting the books, going to archives. And and then after that year, I begin to write, and uh, the the research process begin begins anew as as uh, with each chapter, and um, and then you know so that I, I develop a huge amount of notes for each chapter, uh, winnow them down to a point where I, I have a sense of where I want to go as far as the chapter structure, and then I write it. And uh, and after reading it to my wife, uh, who is the toughest critic alive, I, I um, make the appropriate changes and then move on to the next. And then and then even after 
a little more than a year of writing, I, I then have a book and then inevitably uh, return to, to research aspects that still need to be fleshed out, that kind of thing. And, and um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a process that uh, by the end of it, I'm, I'm just, I need to see it through. It, it becomes a real kind of <laughs> uh, 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 neurotic <laughs> quest uh, in which, you know, for me, it's, it's, the, it's the most fun is, is when it's, you know, all on paper and then tweaking it to the point that it begins to feel like a coherent work. Now, you said you, you'd mentioned you, you, you read your work to your wife. Uh, is that the case? You actually read it to her or do you let her? Yeah, say, yeah. Oh, we, we, after dinner, uh, she does the dishes. It's a good deal from my perspective. <laughs> while I read it to her. And it's really important for me because the act of reading out loud is so different from reading it on the computer screen. And so it's, it, it gives it a whole new perspective. And so often I, you know, I'm reading it along, I can realize, oh no, this isn't working. Or, or she will start scribbling on her notepad and, and I'll realize, oh, something's going on. So th- that process, it gets me sort of outside of myself. Uh, and and I I can sort of hear the cadences rather than read them. And, and so it's, 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 an important part of my process. And will she stop you uh, to to mention something, or will she, as you said, write something down and then she? Share with you? She, I will stop when she starts scribbling. I inevitably say, "What was wrong with that?" And she'll just say, "Keep going, keep going." And so, she, and then, so she waits until it's over and has her notes, and then we go through that, and that becomes the basis of of her comments. And it's it's. Uh, uh, it's God bless her. It's <laughs> it's it's way. In, I think it's beyond the the, the normal marriage contract. But um, I, I it's it's been fun to do over the years. What a wonderful process. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's good or bad for the marriage. Yeah, but. <laughs> right. So now we know how history ends, but do you always know how your book ends? Well, you know. Yes, sort of, but I have to say that when I'm writing, in the act of writing the chapter, I I have sort of suspend belief. I'm I'm focusing so on what I am describing, um, I I really lose a sense of of the inevitable result, and um, because part of what I'm trying to do is to recapture a sense of of not the inevitability of history, because there isn't an inevitability, but how everything was in the balance and how it could have gone so many different ways. And, um, you know, and, and so when I'm in that kind of moment, uh, I, I, I'm almost surprised by the direction it ultimately goes. Well, we've been talking with Nathaniel Philbrick. You can find his book, Valiant Ambition, George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution in stores right now. Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW correspondent Shannon Mon tells us all about the growing field of digital audiobooks, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Benedict Tracker. I'm the author of the Alex Ferris series, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW correspondent Shannon Mon will tell us all about the rise in digital audiobooks. Hello, Shannon. Hey, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. So it looks like in Monday's issue, we've got a big feature from you that that uh, that, that talks about this growth in, in digital. Uh, is it digital and CDs as well, or, or uh, just, just digital? And tell us about it. 
Sure. Well, tis the season where all the data and statistics come out from sales of the previous year. And um, so we were looking at a couple of those reports, one of them from the Audio Publishers Association and one from um, the AAP, and both of them reported that digitally downloaded audio was very, very strong, growth in double digits in 2015. So we wanted to take a closer look. And um, in looking at that, I spoke with a number of audio publishers, and the biggest growth is in digital audio, but all of them maintain that CD remains a still viable and very strong part of the business. There are some people who who still prefer listening via CD, and also you, you just have that really strong component of people who listen in the car, and that remains... Um, you know, a very big way for, for those commuters and um, people who are listening in the car to, to get their audio. And could they also do it digitally if they had, if they plugged in their, their iPhone? Oh, sure, sure. There's any number of devices um, that they can use for playback in the car. But I think just the fact that um, that the car is where lots and lots of people listen mm-hmm. is something that helps keep the CD strong um, in terms of growth. But when you're looking at the growth of digital audio alone, it's quite impressive over the last couple of years. It's not just um, that it happened in 2015, but we've been going pretty strongly for the last two or three years. Um, Again, double-digit growth reported by audio publishers and also in that AAP report, mainly in the adult book category. So, so mostly adult books. I know whenever we go on a car ride, we, we uh, check out from the library children's books. Was there much information on library markets and, and kids' books? It wasn't really separated out too much other than um, the fact that the number of, of total audiobook titles published um, continues to be strong as well. So when you separate out digital audio growth, um, from general audio growth, the numbers are, are different, but still good. So when you're looking at the whole audio industry, everything is up. I believe it's 20% that I'm looking at here. And um, that would include all of the other categories in addition to adult audio. Children's, young adults are all doing very well. And again, the, the digital output from all publishers has increased, um, which has allowed them to do considerably more titles than they've done in the past overall. Wow. So it's kind of that whole idea of um, all boats rising when when the numbers are positive. Great. Well, um, did the study release numbers? Yes. Um, so, for instance... Um, Downloaded audio sales, according to the AAP's StatShot report for 2015, indicated that um, those download sales were up 38.9% mm. in 2015 over 2014. And, of course, um, we do consider when we're looking at these studies that 
you're talking about only the publishers that are reporting to these various organizations. So it's not a pure um, indicator, but it, it's it's still very suggestive of what is going on. Um, most of the major publishers do participate, um, so it, it still does give us a pretty good idea. So AAP has downloads up 38.9% um, in the adult books category, and um, the AAP, uh, I'm sorry, the Audio Publishers Association, the APA, has digital downloads up 34% in both dollars and units sold um, and that is that was in 2015 compared to 2014. So those are pretty dramatic numbers. That is pretty impressive. So you in, you you interviewed in your article several of the the key players. Uh, well, who are they? Who are the big publishers for for audiobooks? And uh, who did you talk to? What do they have to say? Well, um, pretty typically, the way that it shakes out for audiobook publishing. Um, we follow with traditional print book publishing. All of the big five houses have um, audiobook units within them, so there's a lot of synergy going on. So we spoke with um, Amanda DiCerno from Penguin Random House Audio, um, Chris Lynch from Simon & Schuster Audio, Samantha Edelson, who is marketing director at Macmillan Audio, uh, we spoke with um, people also from HarperCollins, Recorded Books, Scholastic, um, Audible, mm-hmm. which is also a player in, in in the field here. So pretty much um, for our purposes here, it was most of the big five, and then um, with Recorded Books, also Blackstone Audio, two independent companies who, who do sizable business. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Audible.com. They uh, they seem to have a self-publishing platform now, um, but but I'd like to know a little bit more about Audible.com and their role. Uh, well, Audible.com um, is a subscription audio service. Uh, they are a company uh, owned by Amazon. Uh, they have been around for a while and were really some of the pioneers in actually um, distributing and producing digital audio. In addition um, to having this uh, subscription service, they do publish their own titles through Audible Studios, which is their the, the studio arm of their company. But they also, through their subscription service, distribute um digital audio published um, and produced by other companies. And in addition to that, they have um, a platform uh, called ACX, which is where rights holders, that could be anywhere from uh, an independent author to an independent publisher to, you know, anyone who holds the audio rights to a book or other property mm-hmm. uh, can come to this marketplace and they can essentially find professionals to help them produce their own digital audio book. So mm-hmm. they can um, audition and hire narrators. They can choose um, production people. 
directors, that kind of thing, they can sort of meet all of the, the parties that they would need to go ahead and produce an audiobook title. And that particular platform, um, according to Beth Anderson, who is publisher at Audible, has really driven a good number of the digital sales that audio or that Audible has reported. So she made a comparison saying that in 2014, there were 13,600 titles produced via ACX, and they're aiming for more than double that, uh, looking at um, on being on track for 30,000 titles this year. Wow. That's pretty great. Those are some, some, some yeah. pretty impressive numbers. Absolutely. So what are some of this year's top-selling digital uh, audio titles? Well, we did ask uh, publishers that we spoke with to, to sort of give us a top five, and um, they went ahead and did that, and lots of them might not be a surprise to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are strong categories um, that are sort of perennial when you're looking at audio. Uh, lots, uh, lots of people love fiction and thrillers, and then there are some just evergreen self-help and personal development titles. So, for instance, Simon & Schuster still has really strong sales of How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, and The Seven Habit- Habits of Highly Effective People. Those are their top two sellers. And then also at SNS, the um, novel All the Light We Cannot See, mm. a Stephen King title, 112263, which has been getting a boost from um, a television adaptation of that book. Um, looking at some of the other publishers, uh, Audible Studios, um, they have as their number three title, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And that is a recording that they did with Scarlett Johansson uh, narrating. So that is likely a, a strong boost for that title. Um, we've got Scholastic with the Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins. Those three books continue to do well. David Baldacci's children's books um, are doing well for Scholastic. Harper, number one, is To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm. Mm. which is always a, a strong seller, um, a biography of Elon Musk, Amy Poehler's memoir, Yes, Please. So those are, are some of the things um, that are out there. I don't want to um, slight anybody. I don't want to read all, all sure, the sure. to you, but... Well, the, this um, well, our listeners can go to uh, to the uh, website or to our uh, uh, print issue uh, on Monday to to get the full list and uh, to get even more on your uh, on your story. For sure. <laughs> well, it sounds great, Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us on this show today. Thanks for having me, Mark. <laughs> I, I hope um, people will get a chance to check out the piece and. Uh, be inspired to check out some of these great audiobooks that are coming down the pike. Well, I'm sure. And with those numbers, it seems like more and more are, uh, actually are listening to audiobooks. Oh, yeah, that that is absolutely true. And um, I hope it continues. <laughs> and now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Heos. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another excellent author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash radio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 